Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment if you have some thoughts on past episodes or what you might like to see down the road. I check out all of the comments and I read all the feedback, and I want to thank everybody who has contributed some thoughts thus far, and hopefully I'll hear from some more of you down the road. Our guest today is Rob McClanahan, considered by many to be the preeminent private trainer in basketball circles. This is a guy who works with some of the best players in the NBA in a one-on-one or two-on-one scenario all year round, all around the country, and sometimes they fly him around the world when they have to make promotional appearances overseas during the summer. Before I tell you any more about Rob, let me read through some of his clients. Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Love, John Wall, Derek Rose, Candace Parker, Al Horford, Brandon Jennings, Dion Waiters, Chandler Parsons, Tyreek Evans. He's also worked with Anthony Davis, DeMar DeRozan, Pau Gasol, Jimmy Butler, Carmelo Anthony, Kyrie Irving, LeBron James, and James Harden. So obviously, if that's your clientele, you're doing something right. And as I mentioned, Rob is now considered to be one of the best, if not the best, private trainers in the NBA. So how did he get there? Well, he got his basketball start, if you will, by walking onto the team at Syracuse University, which is my alma mater. Rob was there about 10 years before I was. He walked onto the team in 1998 and stayed with them through 2001. He won a Big East tournament. He participated in three NCAA tournaments. And while he didn't necessarily vault into some sort of magical player, he was a bench player and a walk-on, as he'll tell you, but he was a guy who soaked up a lot from the Syracuse coaching staff and realized during those years with the team that he wanted to stay around the game. So after his time at Syracuse, he moves down to the Tampa Bay area and becomes a coach for a brief amount of time at the University of South Florida. And while he's at South Florida, he has the opportunity to spend a little time at the nearby IMG Academy, which is probably in the top tier you can imagine of private high schools. This is where tremendous football players go, tremendous basketball players go, tremendous soccer players go. It is just an unparalleled resource in some ways when it comes to high school athletes getting ready to advance their careers. And so when he's there, he starts to see that there's there's more to it than the coaching side that he likes. He enjoys the training aspect of it, the one-on-one interaction you can have with players, the idea of building years-long relationships with guys that will last beyond just somebody's career or before somebody transfers or before somebody turns pro. And so he decides to try and make that into a business. He goes back to Rhode Island where he grew up and, and he starts training guys. And he starts, you know, at the very low level, working with young kids, high school kids, middle school kids, sometimes even younger. And slowly but surely, he starts to expand his resume, expand his repertoire, and gain a little bit of a following. And as he starts to gain more and more of an influence in the area and spread out his tentacles a little bit, if you will, he gets accepted to be a coach or a trainer at the ABCD camp, which is one of the most prominent camps for 
high school talent in the country every year when it comes to basketball. And this is where your top recruits go every year. This is where guys are playing against each other at the absolute highest level before they either go to college or decide to go to the G League, go pro, go to Europe, whatever. And while he's there, he starts to develop relationships with guys like Kevin Love, Derek Rose, OJ Mayo, these guys that went on to be, you know, top picks and then in some cases have, you know, superstar quality careers. And as some of his clients develop into that all-NBA, all-star kind of level, of course, word of mouth begins to spread. Oh, Kevin Love is working with this guy. Oh, Derrick Rose, you know, one rookie of the year, and, and he's working with this guy. I got to go work with that guy. Or if you're an agent, man, I got to get my clients working with that guy, especially my rookies coming into the league. They can work with Rob to get ready for the pre-draft workouts, to get ready for the draft itself. This is the best guy in the league. I got to go work with him. And so in 2007, he joins Wasserman Media Group, one of the most prominent sports agencies in the country, and they're responsible for representing some of the best basketball players in the league and, and certainly a number of guys that come into the league each year as rookies. And while he's there, he's kind of the development coach working with these guys, getting them ready for the draft, getting them ready for their NBA seasons, and then continuing to work with them beyond their rookie years. And again, fostering and developing those long-term relationships. He's very successful at that. He starts to grow his business and, and earn a reputation as one of the most respected trainers around the league. And so in 2013, he starts his own company, Rob Mack Basketball. And things, again, continue to just take off. He starts to train more and more stars, and he starts to develop longer relationships with these guys that go on to have terrific careers, whether it's a Kevin Love or a Russell Westbrook or a Kevin Durant. He attracts Steph Curry as a client, starts working with him. And so gradually, just about everybody around the league, if you were to ask top-tier players, do you know Rob McClanahan, the answer is yes. And a lot of them have worked with him, whether that was for short-term work or long-term work, it doesn't really matter. He's gotten his hands on some of the top players in the NBA. And so I thought that you know this would be a fascinating insight into that kind of world as the NBA gets ready to restart later this week in their bubble down there in Orlando because not only have these guys not been playing for a while but of course many of them are Rob's clients he's been finding ways to to work with them he's been traveling still in the last six weeks or so even with everything going on with COVID-19 and things like that and so this was a really fun conversation about the bubble about training guys about building trust and relationships with some of the most famous basketball players to walk this earth. And then, of course, I mixed in a couple Syracuse stories as well. So it's a little different, but again, something that's really topical, something that's newsworthy right now, and something that, you know, most fans might not know the name Rob McClanahan, but he has become one of the most influential people in the NBA because of the players he trains on a regular basis. So without further ado, let's get into a conversation with Rob McClanahan. Well, Rob, thank you very much for carving out some time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. I know you've been traveling, and I know business doesn't stop even if uh, the NBA is paused temporarily. So I got to ask you, for somebody whose business is predicated on travel and you know bouncing around internationally, nationally, all over the place, what have the last few months been like for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the first six weeks or two months, I didn't travel at all. Literally stayed put. Um, you know, not only... Cause I didn't want to travel, but you know, players were advised and you know by the teams to stay, you know, stay at home. So, but eventually, you know, guys got to work out, right? That's their job, and it's, and I got to train guys. That's my job. So, uh, as time went on, I started traveling. I would say, it's you know maybe six six weeks, two months ago. At this point, um, going to see a few guys here and there to kind of just maintain. 
what we've worked on, you know, before, uh, not knowing if the league was coming back or not. You know, we didn't want to not work out. The league comes back, and next thing you know, you know, they're out of shape. So, uh, kind of maintained a little bit, and then um, when we heard the league was coming back, um, you know, it, it was really more a matter of who was going to work out, who was not going to be in the bubble, and now it's figuring out, you know, the schedule going forward the next six months. You know, uh, training guys getting ready for the season in December of the team. The players are not in the bubble. That's why I'm here in New Orleans with Alfred Payton. You know, he's obviously with the Knicks, so, but he's not going to be playing at all until, let's say, December, let's say, best case scenario. So, uh, the same thing, kind of just maintaining and figuring out the schedule going forward. As a trainer who, you know, not only takes pride in the development of players, but also, you know, the health and maintenance of players, does does the idea of a bubble after such a, a long layoff concern you at all injury-wise with guys ramping back up to 100 miles an hour? Um, it did in the beginning not knowing what the schedule was going to be like, but I, yeah, I think the league and Adam Silver did a great job of giving them a good three-week period to um, get ready for the games. And then also the eight games they're going to play before the playoffs, I think, is almost like, you know, preseason, you know. Um, so I think that was a good, you know, good way to do it, too. So, yeah, I mean, listen, there's always that the possibility of an injury coming back this quick and such a long layoff. And I love how everybody thinks that everyone has a court in the house, you know, and they're working out. Like, everyone doesn't have a court in the house. So, you know, the, the, the stay-at-home workouts in a basically hotel gym is is good. Uh, but it will never, you know, compare to, you know, a game, you know, or playing against those guys at that level. So, yeah, I, I, so, yeah, it does concern me, but they did a good job of, of getting them ready for the playoffs. I think it will take until maybe even the second round of the playoffs to see the basketball we're used to, um, you know, uh, you know, so, but going forward, I think they did a heck of a job, you know, getting these, giving the guys enough time to prepare for that, for the playoffs. But, I can't sit here and tell you it's going to be, you know, good basketball in the beginning. I don't think it will be. Um, but then again, it's still sports, and I think Adam did a you know, hell of a job of, of getting, getting this ready. You know, one of the things that, that I really found unique about your approach um, when I was doing my research, and obviously, you know, I've known about you for a while with, you know, me being a Syracuse grad as well. And, and so the thing that I really liked about your approach was hearing guys say that, you know, every handful of games, whether it's seven games, 10 games, whatever, you would do kind of film breakdowns for your clients. And, and you know, the reason yep. for that is because you can focus just on them, whereas a coaching staff has to be worried about the whole team. And I had never really thought of it that way about how even at the highest level, these coaches have so much going on that they can't pay as close attention to one particular aspect as, as you can. And so I, I'm wondering, were you able to, to spend any more time on film work and things? during this kind of time off and and are you looking forward to doing that again when guys have game tape in the bubble yeah i mean definitely did a lot of films only so much you can do when there's um you know no more games to break down um but i, I did my best of, of sending my guys film and, and kind of just even on my own just just looking at stuff um you know kind of getting even more detailed when i have so much free time of what you know we can continue to work on with my guys or maybe things I wouldn't have seen and, 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 you know, dove into as much if this was normal. So definitely did a lot of film. I wouldn't say I did a ton of film sending my guys stuff. It was more for myself to, to really learn more about the guys I trained or, you know, could potentially train, you know? And so all that affected everything, you know, we, the whole draft stuff, 
you know, that cut out screwed up, you know, I was ready to do some pre-draft stuff and things like that. And so right now it's just kind of figuring out the best strategy to go forward. And at the same time, you don't want to really work a guy out for a month straight when not playing until December. So I think right now I'm kind of dabbling, working guys out here and there, and I think we'll start to ramp it up again, you know, uh, September, October, you know, get ready for early December startup again. It's, I think that's a goal that the league wants to do. You know, in a typical year, if we didn't have everything that's going on right now, I imagine spring and into the summer must be extremely hectic for you because not only do you have clients in the league, but as you mentioned, the pre-draft workouts are also a big component of, of what you do. So how do you kind of balance in a normal year working with the new guys, getting them ready for the draft in the NBA, and then also, you know, bouncing here, there, and everywhere, depending on which of your clients need a workout, you know, during the playoffs or the end of the regular season? You mean like a normal situation? Yeah, normal situation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, um, I mean, yeah, pre-draft starts, you know, mid-April, uh, pretty much late April. Um, so usually I take care of that stuff early on. And then NBA guys, let's say guys that don't make the playoffs, they won't really start coming in until, you know, earliest, early, early June, mid-June. So, Sometimes I'll combine the pre-draft with the with the uh, NBA vets, but you know sometimes it just kind of just carries over into mid-June, and by then the draft starts. So it, it's tough. You know, in the past I don't know, 13 years, I've been doing everything in LA. This is the first summer I haven't been to LA um, since I've been doing this. So um, kind of bouncing around, going to my guys now rather than them coming, you know, to me in LA. So. Definitely different, definitely more travel. Usually around this time, not traveling unless I do an overseas trip in Asia or something like that. But just kind of, yeah, it's just definitely different. Me going to the guys at this this stage of the year, uh, something I've really never done. We've all just met in LA, you know, so just adapting to that right now. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about some of those international experiences that you've had. You've, you know, been all over the place in Europe and Asia, um, you know, visiting clients and then also traveling with NBA guys like Durant and Curry who have, you know, promotional opportunities and things overseas. Um, you know, just from a from a personal standpoint, what has it been like to, to have that experience and to seeing basketball in different parts of the world? Does that broaden your your repertoire as a, as a trainer or do you pick up ideas and things from from different parts of the world when you see guys? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, th- those trips are some of the best trips I've been on in my life, you know, experience-wise. The basketball stuff is one thing, but just to be in those parts of the world with, you know, not only my clients, but I consider them all my friends and my clients. Sure. And um, going through that with them and seeing the world as my job is, you know, I've been kind of really blessed to, to, to do that. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, especially in China, I've been over there a lot just on my own to do clinics, stuff like that in Asia and, and uh you know, all over China, Japan, you know, uh, Philippines, Taiwan, Korea. So it, it's it's um it's it's been great. You know, I've learned a lot from people over there. I think they've learned a lot from me. Um, and kind of the best way to train these guys, I think Europe and, and Asia sometimes think more is good, but I'm the opposite. I'm more efficient, less you know, harder workouts, less time. Um, you know, game reps, as I always say. So I think both ends has been great, but the, those experiences. I mean, it just have been unreal, you know, to, to travel with Durant, Curry, Rose, K-Love, you know, over the world pretty much has been uh, pretty cool. And it's also cool to see that those guys are so in tune with getting better that um, they bring their trainer with them. You know, it's, it's only sometimes five to seven days. And, but 
that's why they're great. They they don't want time off. There's plenty of guys that make those trips and say, oh, it's, it's a week off. It's fine. I'll just, you know, but and with the time change, with all this scheduling, it's it's crazy that they find that couple hours to get to work in. And that's why I go along. So it's pretty cool to see why they are great. Things like that. I think one of the, the coolest parts about, you know, sort of the relationship that you have with these guys is, is what you just mentioned. And that in addition to, you know, them being clients that you consider them friends. And there was an article in the Washington Post where John Wall was quoted as saying, you know, it's kind of unusual that you would have a guy that can work you out really, really well. And then he's also the same guy that you wouldn't mind hanging out with outside of the gym. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's essentially mm-hmm. what he said. And and so, you know, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, what is it about, you know, your demeanor or your approach or your dynamic that allows um you know for that heightened trust both on and off the court yeah i think the biggest thing is i i just treat them like normal people yeah i don't treat them like an all-star and a player guy makes a lot of money i don't ask them for anything ever um and i think that goes along in the beginning with the trust you know I, i'm just honest with them i think sometimes in their life they have a lot of people around them that you know, it's okay. You can miss a workout, things like that. And I'm the opposite. You know, if you're going to hire me, you're going to listen to me. You're going to work out when I say we're going to work out and how long we're going to work out. When, you know, don't question my drills. And, uh, and they appreciate that. You know, they appreciate that I care about them getting better. But I'm also the type of guy, like, after the workout, like, what are we doing tonight? Let's get lunch. Let's get dinner. You know, I'm not the kind of guy, like, oh, see you tomorrow. You know, to me, if there's no trust off the court, there'll never be trust on the court. And, that's been my approach my whole career. I don't know where it came from. It just kind of happened. I mean, I treat them like grown men, like they should be treated and not an NBA all-star. And uh, these guys are some of my best friends. I mean, Kevin Lowe is my son's godfather, you know, so it, it, it goes deeper than the training. I always say when these guys retire, nothing's going to change. So they talk the same way, you know. Does it does it hit home with you when, you know, a guy like Kevin Love has an opportunity to win, you know, the most uh, improved player like he did a number of seasons ago and in his, you know, speech accepting the award, he he mentions you. Now, I know obviously you get paid and things like that and you want to grow your business, but from a personal standpoint, does that kind of mean a little bit more when a guy goes out of his way to to say thank you and, you know, appreciate the efforts you put in? Uh, big time. Like big time. I mean, I mean Kevin, that was a heck of a week for me in my, my career. I mean, because the week before, Derek Rose had won MVP, and he yep. did the same thing. He used my full name and thanked me. So, yeah, it was. I, was, I wasn't even watching this speech, and I was doing workouts in L.A. when he did that speech in Chicago. And, you know, I looked at my phone, and, you know, I have all these woes. David Aldridge always said, you know, did you just hear that? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? You know, so <laughs> to have 100, 100 text messages from people across the country saying, this guy just said your full name, you know, so – um, definitely, definitely crazy. Definitely humbling. Um, you know, so it, it definitely goes a long way with me that the guys actually give me a little credit, you know, cause they don't have to do that at all. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's something that they could certainly just keep it quiet or, or, you know, speak about family members, friends and things. So I can imagine that that's a, a pretty rewarding feeling. Um, you know, as your training and your methods and your drills and things have evolved over the years, I'm wondering if, if you walked into a gym tomorrow and we're doing drills with, you know, let's say Durant, for example, would, would Jim Beheim and Mike Hopkins and these guys pick up on some of the things that, that maybe they tried to do, you know, all those years ago at Syracuse with you? Um, as far as what? I mean, like, any of the drills, any of the inspiration and things, did it come from, you know, anything oh, yeah, at Manly yeah. Fieldhouse? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I mean, uh, Bayham's been there since day one. I mean, Hop is the first guy I've seen, 
he's so so in tune involved with the workouts and he's I pretty much just subconsciously started doing workouts like he did when I first started doing this in 2002 you know Hop was always in it and yelling and taking charges and you know insane stuff but I just thought it was so cool because guys respect him so much that he actually put in that time and energy that to, you know to work like that so Hop's definitely the first guy to show me that part in player development you know it's funny because he learned he learned from Gerg you know um, sure. you know so the fact that I learned from Hop and I kind of where I first started to fall in love with that uh, you know it was great and Hop's still you know a great friend of mine a great mentor of mine and we talk all the time so and you know we just talked two days ago you know he called me and uh, that's why Hop's Hop he just called me for a little bit of advice on some pick and roll stuff and ball screen stuff and uh, you know it's it's humbling that he would actually call me for some, you know, lack of better word, advice, and in uh, in the end, I learned from him in the beginning. So it's it's pretty cool to come full circle like that, and uh, but that's why hops hop. He just wants to keep learning. I'm the same way, you know. Yeah, I remember, you know, during one of the years I covered the the Syracuse basketball team for the the Daily Orange, the student paper. It was a year when. Uh, Rakeem Christmas and by Musakita, I believe, were the two big men. And one of the big points of emphasis with them was trying to make them tougher and stronger to stand up to what was then the Big East before they moved to the ACC. And I remember, you know, almost almost, you know, frame for frame what it looks like watching some of your videos with Hop getting the pad out and hitting the guys on rebounding drills and, you know, making sure they finish through contact and yelling and screaming and all these kinds of things, you know, bringing up the energy and things like that. And so I can imagine that that would be, you know, something infectious almost as a player that, that when you go into coaching yourself, it it translates. And and so when you when you bring the energy to the gym with these guys that, you know, are, are megastars, international icons do they appreciate the fact that you're willing to jump in and, and be in the fire with them so to speak as opposed to just standing there with a whistle yeah oh yeah definitely definitely you know and i've seen guys do workouts that i mean it's crazy you know sit in the sideline or just stand there and have someone else do the passes and the rebound again i mean i'm out there guarding them you know i trained out Peyton out today and uh i mean i literally had someone pass and someone rebound and i guarded him you know uh <laughs> somewhat lightly but i still did and i, I talked talk a lot of smack and you know i tell them that if they can't score on me they got problems you know so uh it, it's good and they like it and i think when you work guys out for a good you know like a Der- derails 10 you know 12 13 years you, you, you gotta amp it up a little bit or it's gonna get boring for for everybody you know so i enjoy doing that because especially if the energy is low which it can be sometimes you know five six days a week of workouts you know it can get monotonous what have you so I think me being in there and doing that and showing that energy, you know, it's funny. And I, I bust their chops because, you know, after one hour with them, they, they go home and they're good, but I'm not, I got three more workouts to do. You know, <laughs> so, you know, I tell them if you, if you can't put in one hour, I'll put in five over here, you know? So, um, they, they really do appreciate that. And it definitely brings up the energy. If the energy is low, I'm the first one to hop in and, and amp it up. I was going to say, if, if you have that many workouts a day, are you in better shape now than when you were playing at Syracuse? <laughs> uh, yeah, it definitely uh, keeps me in shape. I'll tell you that. You know, those guys, I mean, I'm, sometimes I'm really sore the next day if I'm actually body up a guy, hit guys for sure. 
You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was was kind of something you referenced in your answer to the last question, which is when you've known a guy like Derrick Rose for 12, 13 years. And, you know, that longevity and the ability to work on a guy's skills over time, that was referenced in another Washington Post article about John Wall, where, you know, he it explained that you guys spent two years, you know, working on mid-range jump shots, even though the overarching goal was to improve his long range shooting. And so, you know, to go baby step by baby step by baby step, starting at, you know, 12 footers, 15 footers, 18 footers and moving your way out. You know, I imagine that for these guys that so much comes so easy to them that is patience something that you, you kind of have to preach to some of these guys? Because look, it took a couple years of work with, with John Wall to see the effects that, that you guys wanted. And I imagine not everybody, you know, myself included when I was a kid that age, didn't want to put in, you know, three years of work, you know, because the goal seems so far away. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, Patience is a big thing, and I tell these guys, it's cliche, but you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and you can't. Like I always, I always tell these guys at the beginning, if you can't master the 15 foot pull up, why are we working on threes? You know, let's master that first. I might take a year or two. I mean, Derek and Russell will be the first ones to tell you. Like, I never really offered too much to work on threes until we mastered that mid range for a couple of years. Um, and I said, once you can hit that, let's hit that. I mean, the Minneapolis Tribune, I think two years ago, called me when Derek Rose had the 50-point game and uh, said, you know, what did you do last summer? You worked on his threes. You know, what did you do all summer? I'm like, this, that game took 13 years. That wasn't, that wasn't one summer. That took 13 years. Um, and that's true. I mean, the, the build-up to that game, you know, what he overcame and, and the work he put in with, with me was just beyond incredible. So, these guys, I think, I, you know, I say all the time, I learn more from them than they can learn from me, for sure. And uh, I'm humble about that. And and I think I've helped them, you know, hopefully a little bit. And, and, and when they give me the credit, you know, <laughs> of course I'll take it. You know, but, uh, yeah, it, it takes time. I mean, John, Russell, Derek are good examples of leading up to be able to shoot anything outside of 15 feet. We worked on that first. Let's master that, you know, and move it out. And I tell, I, I still train kids 10, 12 years old. And they need to do the same thing. You know, there's no reason to shoot threes at that age. None, none at all. Just creates bad habits. Um, you know, but growing up, you know, you and I would want to go on the court and try to dunk it. Now the kids go, go in they want to shoot a curry three. So it's way different now than it's ever been. Um, and habits, bad habits get created. You know, when the kids can't reach the rim with their legs, they're shooting from the hips. And now they're 16 years old, shooting from the hips. So I always make sure I tell kids, don't do that. Let's let's work on, let's work on this first. When you're strong enough, let's, you know, maybe work on a 17-footer. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about your book, which, you know, came out in October of 2019, and for those who might not be familiar, it's called Network, Training the NBA's Best and Finding Keys to Greatness. Um, you know, you reference that you still continue to train kids in addition to these guys who are going to be future Hall of Famers. So the, the majority of people that read your book, I imagine, are not going to be future Hall of Famers. So what would you like young kids or, or people that, you know, don't have that ceiling? What's one lesson that you hope they could take away from your book and apply? to themselves even if they don't have you know the god-given talent that a durant or a westbrook has yeah i mean to me it's just persistence you know um as far as you know the way i built my business it was through networking through through 
you know, meeting people, being nice to people, um, staying in contact with people. That's a major, major thing with me. If I wasn't a networker, this stuff would never happen. Um, I could be the best trainer in the world. It doesn't matter if you're not networking the right way and meeting the right people. You know, you, you just don't get guys like Steph Curry. You just don't get those guys because you're a good trainer. You get it because there's people around them that trust you. So Steph's a good example of someone, you know, there's three or four people around him that I've known for years and I kept in contact with and I'm close friends with. His agent, a couple of guys from Under Armour, and um, he was in L.A. They said, you know, good friend of mine, Rob, and he trusted them, and this guy trusted me, and it just kind of like domino effect and worked out, and that was it, you know. So um, that's a big thing with me and, and telling kids, and high school kids especially, like you could be 4.0 GPA. That doesn't matter to me. It, it's, it's, it's who you know. It's who trusts you. Uh, networking is, is a, you know, obviously a major thing with me and uh, – that's that's goes so far in, in any business in the world, any business. If you, you can't network and, and have relationships, none of it matters. And the relationship I have with these guys is huge. You know, uh, we talked about earlier, the trust is there off the court. So why wouldn't it be there on the court? If the trust isn't off the court, there's no reason to trust me on the court. And, and they do. And I, it's humbling to me that these guys trust me with their career and their craft and their money for their family. You know, so I've always, you know, taken that uh part of it and realize how important I, you know, I am for them you know i wanted to ask you as well about some of your time at syracuse because you know you've had the opportunity you know since then to work with guys that went through the program that were coached by the same coach you played for and and i'm curious is there uh, is there a little bit of of extra fondness or or kind of nostalgia when you get to work out you know a q sky because of you know the connection you have to that program Oh yeah, definitely. It's always really cool. I mean, the guys I've worked with, all those guys, you know, Flynn, Eton Thomas, um, Dion, you know, Carter Williams. So it's really cool. And obviously right away we just hit it off because we can, we can talk so much about, you know, the cues and all that stuff. But Eton was one of the coolest things for me because you know, we were very close in, in school and I looked up to him and I had a lot of good conversations. And when he, you know, he called me and uh, through his agent and uh, Arn to, to Arn tell him to work him out at IMG Academy. And again, it was full circle. You know, here's a guy that started on the team that I did never played on. And you know, and I was this you know little walk on who just was begging to get him in the game. And here I am, like getting him ready for the NBA. <laughs> so um, it was kind of funny how that happened. You know, here's this guy who was a much better player than me. I play with and now here I am getting him ready for an NBA season so definitely good experience definitely cool I mean uh, the Q's is you know one big fraternity as you know and um, without without playing at Syracuse none of this happened none I mean Troy Weaver and I Troy's been a great mentor of mine along with Hop Coach Bayham has been great to me to see Bayham at Olympic practices and stuff like that when I'm working out but these guys in the Olympic team is just you know it's just crazy, you know. So to go through that and see all these cute guys along the way and have them help me has been pretty surreal. You know, you were on campus from, you know, on the team as a, as a team uh, member from 98 to 2001. And it was during that time, I was looking it up earlier, I believe it was 
um, in 2000, was it 2001, that spring that Carmelo committed to Syracuse? And, you know, for, for people who might not follow the program that closely, obviously Carmelo is probably the most famous Syracuse alum from a basketball standpoint. And I was wondering, you know, two years later, they win the national title in 03. Were you starting to see, um, you know, sort of the, the early impressions of what would go on to be a, a national title team? And, and what was the buzz around Carmelo being a recruit that committed while you were on campus? Yeah, I mean, when he committed, it was, you know, next-level stuff. And, and Troy Weaver was – my senior year was Troy Weaver's first year there. Uh, me and Troy hit it off right from the beginning. And um, as everyone knows, he's the one that got Melo there, you know, but the private relationship he had with him. And so, yeah, it was – yeah, I don't think anyone expected maybe a title, but there were rumblings of, okay, we could be pretty good. But then the rankings came out and they were unranked start the season so that was kind of odd to everybody but obviously they weren't right about it and um yeah i mean they, they recruited the, the perfect team you know for Melo. you know they had all the shooters you know they had a team they, they had perfect guys in that zone that were just long you know quest wayne was someone that's not talked about enough for that team he's a fifth year guy um you know accuse and he was kind of the you know the mature vet to help help those guys on the court in the locker room and realize what it is. And you know, the rest of the guys are like freshmen pretty much and sophomores, you know? So, um, but yeah, Mello come in there was, was, you know, come on. It was major. You know, th- I think that, that spring of the committed, he was playing against LeBron in a high school game in ESPN, you know, and just after that, I was like, well, this guy's going to Q's, you know? So <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was really cool. And, uh, yeah, he's definitely, I mean, for a guy to spend nine months on campus, maybe less, the impact he had from a title standpoint to the Camelo Center is, is, is pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, being somebody who grew up in Connecticut and then went to Syracuse, I was around the Big East essentially for the first 20 two years of my life before they moved to the ACC and you know you had an opportunity to be part of that conference and it's in its heyday when it was just as dynamic and and robust as as any league has ever been what was it like to to sort of go through the rigors of the Big East and and what are some of your favorite memories from from being on the teams you know back in the late 90s and early 2000s yeah I mean listen I grew up in Providence so playing in the Big East and just being on a team like that was just a, a dream come true quite honestly and um you know, I was eight years old when Rick Pitino led Providence to the Final Four, and so I, I you know, my dad had front row tickets growing up. I still have them. So, just to be in the Big East and be a part of that was surreal to me. Um, and you know, it was the prime. It was, it was, the, you know, it was Ron Artest, with Rip Hamilton. It was those guys, Allen Iverson. You know, old guys that I kind of still play live, which was crazy to me. Um, like you know, my junior year, we won the Big East championship. That's probably one of the biggest memories I have the biggest regular season championship. Uh, you know, we got cut short in the Sweet 16, lost to Michigan State in Michigan, mind you. But um, <laughs> that was uh, that that was a great year. We started 19-0. and 0. Uh, We were number like, two or three in the country. And that was when the Dome was just rocking. It was UConn. It was Georgetown. It was so – I was lucky enough to be involved in Big East when it, when it was the real Big East. And, that might not go well with some people, but the Big East is, is good right now, but it will never equal ever what it was. Yeah, and, and I'll get you out of here on this. I can't, you know, let you go without asking. Do you have any 
appropriate uh, Jim Beheim memories and stories that you could share? Anything fun that, that stands out all these years later? Yeah, it's one I tell all the time. I mean, um, I think it was my my senior year of playing, I think, I want to say Colgate or Cornell, one or the other, I think Colgate. And uh, he puts me in, we're up 30 or something. He puts me in with a minute left. And first possession, I hit a three in the right wing. And um, they come down, they miss a shot with like 10 seconds left. And coach says, dribble it out, you know, whatever. So I'm right there next to the bench. And he's like, yeah, dribble it out. And he starts to walk towards basically the coach to shake hands. And I just, I just shot it. And uh, I made it. I made two threes in like 45 seconds. And he was livid. You know, we're up 30. Why are you shooting threes? They don't let the clock run out, and that's it. So someone, I don't know, it was Pete Dame, or somebody came up to me in the locker room and said, um, what do you mean? Like, that was kind of funny, but why did you shoot the three? Just let the clock run out. Why are you rubbing it in the face? I said, what's he going to do, not play me? <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, I, Coach and I talk about that all the time. So it was pretty funny. But, yeah, I led the nation in threes for a good month. I was three for three. <laughs> was six points the career year. high for you? Yeah. Um, yes, it was. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah. well, Rob, thank you so much for carving out a half hour of your day. I really appreciate it. It was great to hear some of your insight. And again, for those who haven't checked out his book, it's called Network, Training the NBA's Best and Finding Keys to Greatness. It's available on Amazon and anywhere you can find books. And again, thanks so much, Rob. It was awesome to catch up with you. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. So there you have it, a conversation with Rob McClanahan, arguably the most prominent and most sought-after trainer in NBA circles. I know that some of you probably enjoyed the the NBA stories a little bit more than the Syracuse stories, but for me, having gone to Syracuse and having covered Jim Beheim for a couple of seasons, the idea of, of him being defied uh, by a walk-on is is just tremendous because, you know, there aren't too many players that have the gall to defy Jim Beheim on the court. And so the idea that, that Rob did it as a walk-on uh, to achieve his career high of six points was uh, was pretty fantastic. And, and obviously there was a lot of other keen insights there too in terms of what it's like to, to deal with some of these these superstars and, and earn their trust and, and develop relationships with them. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty cool conversation. I learned a lot from him and I'm looking forward now to watching some of his guys in the bubble to see how these guys perform and, and you know, see if... Uh, I can notice anything that, that Rob would have done to help them get in the best shape they can after this long layoff. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode. It was a lot of fun for me. Don't forget, you can check out all other episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, please leave a five-star rating if you like the show. All of that helps with exposure and helps make sure that we distribute this program to as many listeners as possible. And until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. <music>